0: Welcome to another gospel message from St. Luke's Anglican Church, Clovelly. In the UK, the average worker spends 36 days a year writing emails. 36 days a year writing emails. Um, 40% of workers, uh, this, a UK survey, reported they were quite sure that they'd make, their work makes no significant contribution to the world. 40% of people. Uh, There was a global survey by Gallup in 2013 that broke down employees into three categories. There was the engaged group, 13%. The disengaged group of workers, 63%. The actively disengaged group of workers, 23%, who actually hurt the organisation they work for, who steal, who hurt those around them who are most vulnerable to self-abuse and all the rest. um, how are you feeling about your work? Right. Um, there's a professor at the London School of Economics, David Graeber, who uh, released uh, this book. I'll let you read the title. Uh, he's arguing that there are millions of people in the Western world or across the world who are toiling away at meaningless, uh, unnecessary jobs, and they know it. I find it hard to kind of admit to others or coworkers, but they know it. And he gives some examples, this guard whose job is to protect an empty room Um, or someone whose you know, administrative job just copying, pasting emails to kind of from one thing to another just to answer kind of, you know, tech inquiries of employees. So um, how are you feeling about your work? (laughs) Now for some of us our work is intensely stressful and for some of us here in our church family, Um, being out of work is very stressful at the moment. Some of us are bored with our jobs and some of us are just utterly overwhelmed with our jobs. Some of us are conflicted with ethical questions at our workplace. Some of us are conflicted about that work-life balance and even being at work. Some of us feel very detached from our work and kind of disinterested. Some of us are so engaged in it that we're actually depleted and have no energy for the rest of life or relationships or family. Some of us kind of want to take our faith to work and some of us just don't know even what that looks like. And today's passage is going to give us a glimpse, there's a lot the Bible's got to say about this, but give us a glimpse into God's vision for good work. That that work is another way we get to worship God. And the kicker is... If you don't learn to worship God through your work, you'll end up worshipping the work itself, or the money, or the status, or the cushy retirement it's going to give you. So we need to learn how to worship God through our work. Except you may have noticed that Colossians 3 is actually addressed to slaves and masters, or in one translation, bond servants. Um, Now, even if you're someone who kind of feels you're like a slave to your boss or maybe a slave to your clients, because you know what? The emails, they just never end, and the expectations never end. Even if you feel like a slave to your work, it's not this sort of slavery. Um, And it's interesting, you know, the New Testament condemns enslavers. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 1, you can look it up. Um, And the New Testament, I think, lays the foundation for the abolition of slavery that happened in the 18th century. And that begins in passages like this. Right, the very fact that the New Testament addresses, bothers to address, pesky slaves as they were seen in the ancient world, gave them a dignity that was unheard of in the first century. Um, the fact that, in probably in a lounge room church in the little city of Colossae, in kind of what is modern day Turkey, slaves and masters met as brothers and sisters in that church, that was remarkable. And the New Testament says some other things like there is a freedom that you can have even as a slave and the most powerful people in the world are often enslaved and addicted to ego, to success and all the rest. Now, there's still some big questions to ask about that question of slavery and in the notes that many of you got in your community group I've written up about that, you can read that. Um, The point for now and for today is how much more? Okay? If even slaves could find dignity in their work, how much more can employees in a free kind of market uh, find dignity? If masters should have treated even slaves justly and fairly, how much more should bosses and employers treat those who work for them with dignity? Do you see how it works? Um, and what we're going to see today is that God's vision for good work is about integrity, accountability, but it rests on our identity. And that's where we're going to finish. So if it's helpful to you, there's a, there's a brief outline on your handout. The first thing is, God's vision is for us to have integrity in our work. Okay? Why don't you grab your Bibles and we're going to read from Colossians 3 verse 22. You know, Our English word integrity is about wholeness. Okay? It's about an integrated life, not a compartmentalised life. Integrity is about the fact you, you're not one thing in public and another thing in private. You're not one thing when the boss is watching and another thing when the cat's away. And that's what this is talking about, isn't it? Integrity, don't be an eye servant. It's a fascinating phrase. It's saying um, if you only work hard when your boss's eye is on you, Well, you know what? If you're someone who kind of works only to be seen, then you're just a people pleaser, it says. If you are only doing the kind of bare minimum to get the boss off your back, you're not working with sincerity of heart. Even if you're fudging the numbers to please the boss or the shareholders, this is saying you're serving the wrong master. See, God wants you to work with integrity, and sincerity, and wholeheartedly to work, you know, I was talking to my sister this week about her workplace, under pressure to kind of sell, um, you know, like the extra warranty they try and flog off at the, the counter, basically in her workplace, the equivalent of that, to kind of sell something as if it was compulsory, so that she can kind of keep up with the figures of the other people in her office, but this is saying, you know what, you've got to work with integrity. You should work hard even when you're bored. You should tell the truth even when it hurts. You should respect authority even when you want to gossip. And that the way you work would be the same as if the boss is watching all the time. Because actually Jesus is watching all the time. And so a Christian who found themselves a slave, unable to change their situation in the first century, you know what, you can imagine, they might have a particular temptation to drudgery, to eye service. But other jobs can tempt us um, to, well, maybe to anxiety or to overwork. And so one of the questions that I'm going to wrestle with this morning and in this week, if you can be part of one of those uh, events is, what's the temp- particular temptation in your work? Now, it's first fascinating. Um, Richard Baxter was a Christian pastor in the 17th century, And he tried to diagnose some of the different kind of unique temptations in different fields. And so this is 17th century language, so stay with me. But he says, um, he's got some words to lawyers. He says, be sure that you make not the getting of money to be your principal end in the exercise of your function, but the promoting of justice and some other things. He says to physicians, doctors, be sure that the saving of people's lives and health be first and chiefly in your intention Before any gain or honour of your own. Or in the light of the uh, recent Royal Commission, a lawyer to the financial service industry said, in an industry where other people's money is just washing through your hands, look out. Things happen. People's moral compasses slip away. Maybe we're all vulnerable to that to some degree. You see, um, every industry and field will have its own particular temptations, including ministry, by the way. And so verse 23 then kind of generalizes the field and says, you know what, whatever you do, work heartily, as though you're working for the Lord God, not for people. Even if your work is voluntary, Even if your work is at home, even if your work is unpaid or unrecognized or unappreciated, work heartily. Whether you're a tradie or trading shares, whether you're blue-collar or white-collar, whether you're a gospel worker or a secular worker, whether you're a free or even a slave, who do you work for? I work for the Lord Jesus. I work for the Lord Jesus. I serve at the pleasure of Jesus. And you know what, by the way, this also means you don't have to fulfill every single expectation of your boss or your parents or yourself because you answer to Jesus and he's the most gracious boss you could ever have. You know, there's something about working with integrity that at some point in your working life you'll realize that is going to cost you. It's going to cost you to work with integrity. I mean, this is hard actually just to kind of Go to work without worrying about whether, you know, you're being seen, whether you're getting the credit. Or worse, actually, it can be hard going to work when you work hard only to have someone else get the credit or take the credit. That's really hard. And so it's interesting, God gives us the hope that we need to do good work. Have another look at verse 23. Colossians 3, verse 23 The Apostle Paul says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Now, slaves weren't normally rewarded. It's kind of like the definition, right? But you see, in God's economy, everything's upside down. I mean, because Jesus paid the punishment that we deserve. We get the inheritance that we don't deserve. God turns everything upside down. And so even a first century slave in very menial work is guaranteed an inheritance laid up in heaven, safe and secure, says Colossians 1 verse 5. know, some of us are kind of you know, banking on getting an inheritance one day, especially with Sydney property prices, and hoping that our parents don't squander it. But you know what this is saying? Actually, every Christian has an inheritance that can never be taken away. And Colossians 3 is saying that hope of that inheritance should transform the way you work. Cuz I mean what what reward is it that gets you up on Monday morning? What is it that kind of, you know, makes you keep going? Is it the money? Or the mortgage? Or the fear? Or the kudos? Or the status? or the rush, or the cushy retirement. Because, you know, if that's your motive, then you're only working to get noticed, or to get money, or to get status. And you're only working for what you get out of it, rather than to give and love and serve through your work. And so Colossians 3 gives us this hope that we need to work for good. It says, you know what, even if no one ever notices... And even if everyone else always gets the credit, (laughs) even if your industry doesn't pay you well in our society or your manager doesn't appreciate you, you'll be able to work with integrity because your security is in heaven with Jesus, untouchable. So God's vision is work with integrity. And then there's a second part. God's vision is for us to lead with accountability. Let's uh, pick it up from uh, chapter 3, verse 25. Colossians 3, verse 25. It says, For, it seems to be like a continuing idea, right? For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master." In heaven now, after that really encouraging stuff, the tone of verse twenty five is a little bit of a surprise I think it 's a warning isn 't it? a warning that the master we serve Jesus, will hold us accountable for how we work, and that seems to be the last kind of uh, part of the message to slaves right um, except the fact that he started talking about The fact we're accountable to Jesus, it's almost like that's the perfect segue to start talking about what masters particularly need to know, and that is that they are accountable too. You may be in a position of authority, but you are not the queen bee or the kingpin. Jesus is. And the master we serve, God, will hold us accountable for the way we treat others especially those who might be under our authority and care. You know, Under Roman law, slaves had no rights at all and masters could do whatever they wanted, but here's Paul saying not so for Christians. Um, Aristotle had a similar household code going through, you know, um, you know marriages and children and parenting and work, um, similar things we've been dealing with. Aristotle's code instructed how to manage your slaves but never how to care for them. But you see, Jesus has come to to put the world back to order, the way it's meant to be, and this is where it begins. So imagine you're a first century Roman citizen, and you've just become a Christian. Well, start treating your slaves justly and fairly, like people, not property. Concern for their families, their, their education, their illnesses, even if that costs you. Because, you see, for Christians, there is a new bottom line that is more than just the bottom line, more than just making money or doing business. And so um, for those of you who might be a a team leader or um, an employer or a boss, here's a question for you. How would you foster in your workplace the treatment of others that is just and fair? You know, what would that look like? Uh, There was a research group... um, in the U.S. Um, called Best Christian Workplaces. Uh, I think the American work scene is a little bit different. Um, but they've, they've kind of, they do this kind of regular survey and ask about what, what are some of the indicators that actually make workplaces good places to be. Here's some of the things, in the, here's some of the indicators. I know what is expected of me at work. I'm satisfied with the recognition I receive for doing a good job. My supervisor cares about me as a person. There is someone at work who encourages my development. My organisation acts on the suggestions of its employees. My co-workers are committed to excellence. My organisation is well managed. My organization's leaders behave with fairness and integrity. I mean, that last one could be just the words of Colossians 3, really, couldn't it? And so, friends, for any of us who are kind of in those positions of power, what do you think about how is it you could foster that kind of workplace? I mean, some of you are just trying to cope with your workplace and it's quite toxic. It's especially worse if you're kind of, you know, young and starting out and you just have no power and no say. And, you know, we keep hearing of examples of bullying, don't we? Um, From the local playground to one of the principals of the local schools, I don't know if you saw that article, to parliament... (laughs) It's just everywhere, isn't it? And if you've experienced that, you need support and prayer to, um, to persevere and to endure and to take a stand or maybe to get out of that workplace. But you see, for any of us who are in power, who have the opportunity to kind of influence our workplace, especially when, you know, the, it doesn't take you to kind of get very high up in the ladder to start to kind of, you know, care about power you know and it's like a little fiefdom it's so easy for those of us who have responsibility and authority to start throwing our weight around or steamroll people or want to kind of make it all about us looking good and hear the bible saying those who are in authority need to know that they are under authority under the authority of the lord jesus and you know there's a link there isn't there between ethics and and accountability, right? There's a link between ethics and accountability. Um, There was a fascinating article a few months ago about uh, kind of reflecting on the Banking Royal Commission that's going on and asking the question, who's responsible? Who's responsible? Is it some individuals or is it the organisation that's to blame? And uh, the article pointed to there's a famous precedent in the Challenger space shuttle explosion, Hands up if you remember this. Well, there you go. There was a famous kind of, you know, um, NASA, you know, kind of uh, rocket launch, and you know, seventy-three seconds into the launch, the whole thing exploded, and seven, you know, astronauts died. And they, you know, they went back and they did um, the inquiry. Right? Engineers had said, "Do there's a problem? Don't launch." And then there was a kind of, you know, management decision. No, we are going ahead. And the, the inquiry kind of, you know, was trying to look into this, but the inquiry refused to blame any single individual, just saying it was the culture of the organisation. No one was responsible. It's fascinating. This Australian journalist kind of is reflecting on that, and here's how she sums up. She says, blame should be laid on individuals... However complex the process of untangling their culpability, otherwise, society as a whole is inviting an accountability vacuum with ethical chaos the result. Now, just try and soak up that last line, right? An accountability vacuum with ethical chaos as the result. Now, that is a glaring hole in our society, right? Accountability, because... Mostly in Western society, we believe there is no ultimate accountability. Where's that going to lead our society? You know, part of the good news of the Gospel of Jesus is, God will judge the world. Good news. We are all accountable. And we may act like we're answerable to no one but ourselves, but one day we will all give an account of our lives to the judge of the universe. And so Christians who are in authority need to know they are under authority and to treat workers justly and ethically. Here's God's vision for good work, right? Work with integrity, lead with accountability. But you know what? That only raises the stakes, doesn't it? That's a lot of pressure to take to work on Monday morning. In fact, we won't be able to live that out if we do not know our new identity. And this is where we need to finish this morning. You know, it's interesting, over the last um, couple of decades, there's been a lot of Christian books about vocation and about how much God values our work, how, how much dignity there is in all sorts of work. Um. You can read these books and um, they'll talk about how God is a worker and how God you know, values work. Um, that Adam and Eve in the garden um, were workers. And there's a lot of really good material, there's a lot to learn from some of those books. Um, this week we're running events about how to kind of integrate your faith and your work because Jesus is Lord of it all of your Monday to Friday, not just your Sunday. But here's the question, it's an uncomfortable question. In modern Western society, do we really need to be reminded of how much God values our work? The yes case would be, well, there was a Hollywood actor this week who was job shamed on social media because he was working as in Trader Joe's, or like Coles, right? It <laughs> was job shamed for working in retail. And Colossians 3 says, you know, whatever your, whatever your work, you can worship God and love people through your work. So we do need to hear that, don't we? And maybe, maybe we need to be reminded of the importance of work because, you know, some of us are kind of sitting here wondering if our jobs are meaningless. Although the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes doesn't kind of make it any easier for us because it actually just says, you know what, maybe all work's meaningless. But then again, in our Western society, we are so obsessed with work, we hardly need to be told that God values your work. This is a quote from Professor Peter Fleming, who works in a university in London. He says, "...the ideology of work has demolished all of the other traditional status structures related to religion, artistic endeavour, raising family and other status symbols within communities." After demolishing these structures, we have been presented with a situation that tells us the only thing that matters is the work you do. And therefore, you should revolve and center your whole life around that. There's a theologian, Helmut Tillicher, I think you say, who says, you know, the way people seek to justify their lives to themselves and others, mostly today, is not by their religious work, but through. Their ordinary work. We place so much value and worth and identity on our work, and the answer the New Testament gives to—is it to kind of resolve some of our questions and anxiety about whether our work matters? It doesn't. The answer of Colossians isn't to say how important our work is to God. I mean, that could only make the situation worse. Now I've got to live up not just to my boss, but to God's expectations, and they're always perfect. But you know, when Colossians 3.22 says, whatever you do, notice it doesn't say, whatever your work, your work is of ultimate significance. No, it says, whatever you do, you can serve the one who is of ultimate significance, whatever your work. In fact, you read the book of Colossians, and what Colossians is really about is how important Jesus' work was, how important Jesus' work was. Because of our failures, because of our moral compromises, Jesus was held accountable. And although we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, Colossians 2 says, because of Jesus, we are forgiven all of our trespasses. And although death hung over us because of Jesus, our life is now hidden with Christ. Colossians 3 verse 3. You know, our society keeps trying to define our identity by what do you do? But the Christian has a new identity. Who do you serve? I serve the Lord Jesus, who served me first. Friends, when we know that we are children of God, when we know that we are servants of Jesus Christ, our identity isn't in our job or our performance or our achievements, but in Jesus and his perfect achievement. We'll know that our security isn't in our work or our savings or how good our CV is, but our security is hidden in Jesus, safe and secure forever. The validation that we're so often seeking through our work. I mean, you, you might like to get more validation from your boss or from your work, but friends, with Jesus, you don't need that. You won't need it because you already have the Creator's approval already as a gift of grace. See, in Jesus, you are worthwhile and loved even if you are out of work or even if you are chronically ill and unable to work. Because of Jesus, the most menial work can be meaningful and the most stressful jobs can be bearable. You know, there's a writer, um, uh, you know, a novelist who uh, wrote in the New York Times, um, he said this, said, uh, when good writing was my only goal, I made the quality of my work the measure of my worth. For this reason, I wasn't able to read my own writing well. I couldn't tell whether something I had just written was good or bad, because I needed it to be good in order to feel sane. Right? If, you inve- you know, like if you try and get your identity from your work, you know, get your worth from your work, you won't even do good work. You'll be too anxious about it to even do good work. But here's Jesus saying to you and to me, I worked myself to death for you so that you don't have to. Come find your identity and your security in me and you won't won't need to save yourself by your work. You'll be able to serve others through your work. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good gift of work. And Father, we confess that so often we've turned a good gift into an idol in our lives. That we've invested too much of our worth and identity in our work. And so, Father, we pray, Lord God, that you would please forgive us and free us and help us to find our identity and security in Jesus alone. And Father, we pray that that would free us to do good work, to work with integrity and to lead with accountability and all for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about St Luke's Anglican Church, please visit www.clovelly.org.au.